Section 11. Desperate Fighting. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. One might have supposed that a man who thus raised a force of working people to do good to others would, in a Christian country, have been honored and encouraged by all the better elements, and defended with vigor by the press, the pulpit, and the police against any of the lower sort who might oppose him or his followers. To the shame of his fellow countrymen, alas, it must be told that so far from this being the case, the general was generally treated for the first few years of the army's work as being unworthy to be received in any decent society, and his followers as blasphemers of religion and disturbers of the peace, who ought, by all possible means, to be suppressed. Those who fattened on the vices of the poor and the opponents of religion generally were undoubtedly the leaders of opposition to his work. There were only too many ignorant ruffians ready to delight in any excuse for disturbance, and very many truly religious people who put down every disturbance so created to the army's account, and who, without taking the trouble to make any inquiry, denounced it mercilessly. Condemned almost wherever mentioned, either by press or pulpit, the general and the army were naturally treated by many authorities, and largely by respectable citizens, not only as unworthy of any defense, but as deserving of punishment and imprisonment. In one year alone, 1882, no fewer than 699 of our officers and soldiers, 251 of them women and 23 children under 15, were brutally assaulted, generally whilst marching through the streets singing hymns, though often when attending meetings in our own hired buildings and eighty-six, of whom fifteen were women, were imprisoned. True, these persecutions almost always gained for us sympathy and friends, as many as thirty thousand people coming out in one case to the railway station to welcome an officer upon his release from prison. Yet year after year such attacks were repeated, and even during the last year, imprisonment was suffered by several officers for leading meetings where they had regularly been tolerated for some thirty years, but where some newly appointed dignitary would rather not see them. When we ask and wonder how so bitter an opposition to such a leader or his work could arise, we always find the sort of explanation which that famous man John Bright once wrote to Mrs. Booth. The people who mob you would doubtless have mobbed the apostles. Your faith and patience will prevail. The craftsmen who find their craft in danger, the high priests and elders of the people, whose old-fashioned counsels are disregarded by newly arrived stirrers up of men, always complain. And then the governors and magistrates, who may care for none of these things, but who always act in the interests of the public peace, think it best to straightly charge these men to speak no more of Christ. The general's attitude in face of all these storms was ever the same. 
Go straight on was the pith of all his replies to inquiries. In his own conduct and bearing amidst the most trying hours, were always in accord with that counsel. As in the case of many popular leaders of thought in England, the custom was established of meeting him at railway stations and escorting him with bands and banners, music and song from train to theater, town hall, or whatever the meeting place might be for the day. When he was received, however, not as in later years with universal acclamations, but with derisive shouts and groans, and sometimes with showers of stones and mud, he smiled to see the commotion, and took every opportunity to show his enemies how much he loved them. Already more than fifty years old, and looking decidedly older, when the worst of these storms burst upon him, this bearing often subdued crowds the moment they really caught sight of his gray beard. At Ipswich, says one of our commissioners, I remember how he won over the booing crowd by laughingly imitating them, and saying, I can boo as well as you, riding with Mrs. Booth through one of the worst riots that he experienced, and in full sight of all the violence which nearly cost one of our officers his life, the general was seen even when his carriage was all splattered with mud and stones, standing as usual to encourage his soldiers and to salute the people. Arrived at the great hall, he was fitter than most of his people to conduct the meeting there. How much his own calm and loving spirit was communicated to many of his followers may best be represented by the remarks of a wounded lieutenant on that occasion to a local newspaper whilst he was in the hospital. The fact that this lieutenant had been the champion wrestler of his county, and would never, before his conversion, have allowed anyone to take any liberty with him, will explain the way in which, from time to time, the general acquired officers capable of overcoming such crowds. The lieutenant, riding in the very dress he had once worn as an athlete, but with our Salvation Army band around his helmet, was a perfect target for the enemy. When I came to S, I never thought for one moment that I should have to suffer and be taken to a hospital for my blessed master. But I have had a happy time there. I can truly say that the Spirit of God has revealed wondrous things to me since I have been in. Though I have suffered terrible pains, the great physician has been close by my side. Whilst being removed into the hospital, he was heard to whisper, I hope they'll all get saved. But he goes on, When I became conscious, I found myself in the hospital with a painful head and body, but it was well with my soul. The grace of God constituted my soul's happiness, so much so then when I thought about Paul and Silas being taken to prison, and how they praised God and sung his praises, my heart sang within me. I could not sing aloud for the pain I was suffering. Could I have done so, I would have made the place ring for the victory the Lord had given me in the battle. Glory to his name. 
I remember I had no sleep until twelve o'clock the second night I was in. The first night was an all-night of pain. At the same time, it was an all-night with Jesus. He was indeed very precious to my soul. I thought of the sufferings of Christ for me, even then the chief of all sinners until saved by his grace. Hallelujah for his love for me. My suffering was nothing, though I suffered thirteen weeks, compared to Christ's. Should my blessed Savior want me to do the work over again, I should do it tomorrow. The general, says one of his chosen associates of those times, always reminded me so of the captain of a vessel in a stormy sea. Perfectly calm himself in a way, yet going resolutely ahead with unerring aim, quickly deciding whether a decision was needed, and always ready to take all the risks. He trained his folks how to go through everything that came to victory. One of the weakest of many women, whom in those days he taught how to rise up out of their ease and go to battle and victory, says of her first sight of him more than forty years ago, He gave me the impression in that meeting of a man of God whose only aim was the salvation of souls. I got saved at one of Mrs. Booth's meetings when I was still a girl only twelve years old. They used to call me Praying Polly, but never having had a day's schooling, when he wanted me to become an officer, I feared my own incompetence. Mrs. Booth said, You will see God will punish you. She had seen something of my work in meetings where I had to take up collections and turn out roughs, and so had no doubt told the general what she thought I could do. Sure enough, I was laid up completely, lost the use of one limb, and had to use crutches. But just as I came weak out of the hospital and penniless, I saw a shilling lying on the ground, picked it up, and with it paid my way across London to the general's house. I thought, oh, if I can only see Mrs. Booth, I'll get her to pray for me and get help from God. When I arrived at the door, she was just coming out to go off to the north of England, but she sent her cab away and stayed for a later train to attend to me. She helped me up the steps and said, Now then, are you willing to follow God? I didn't feel fit for anything, but I said, Yes, if God will only help me, I'll go to the uttermost parts of the earth for him. Accordingly, after having some care and nursing, I recovered strength, and soon after returning to my corps, I, in a meeting when my name was called, forgot my crutches and hobbled to the front without them. How the soldiers all shouted! The captain carried them after me on his shoulder home that night. After I had been in the war for some months, I was ordered to bid farewell to Lancaster, and whilst resting at a little place near, I received order to go to Scotland. When I was at the station, however, on the Saturday, I got a wire from the general. Orders cancelled. Go King's Lynn. 
Nobody at the station knew at first where it was, and even the stationmaster said, You cannot get there today. But I must, I said. I have to commence my work there tomorrow. And he found out there was just a chance by taking an express part of the way. When I got there at a quarter to ten at night, I knew of no friend and found there had been no announcement made in the town. But on going to a temperance hotel to put up, I learned that a gentleman near had the letting of a large hall. I at once went to him. But, he said, we don't let like that out of business hours, and we are accustomed to get payment in advance of the two pounds ten shillings it costs. As I had only sixpence left, I could pay nothing. But I said to him, The Reverend William Booth is responsible. You draw up an agreement, I'll sign, and you shall have the money Monday morning. Somehow he felt he could not refuse me, and so I got my haul for Sunday afternoon and evening. After a good night's rest, I went out on the Sunday morning and spoke during the forenoon in twelve streets, making, of course, my announcement of the afternoon and evening meetings. A poor woman who thought I was out singing to get bread came and gave me one and a half pennies, saying, That's all I have, but you shall have it. I had to do everything myself in the afternoon meeting, for I could not get anybody who came even to pray. But they gave me twelve shillings. I wanted them to help me hold a meeting outdoors at 4.30. At 5.30 we had to open the doors, as so many were waiting to get in, and at six the building was packed. We kept up the meeting till after ten o'clock, by which time seventeen people had come out to seek salvation. The police sent me a message one Sunday evening, during the meeting, that they wanted me at the police station. I replied that I was engaged that evening, but that I was at their service any time after six the next morning. So they had me up the Monday morning and sentenced me to a month's imprisonment, but they never enforced it till I left the town. In another place we had no hall, and I have seen my soldiers in the early morning trample snow down till it was hard enough for us to kneel upon for our prayer meeting. In Tipton, one of the converts was called the Tipton Devil. He once sold his dead child's coffin for drink. When we got him a week later to the penitent form, and I said to him, Now you must pray. He said, I can't pray. But you must, I said. After waiting a moment, he just clapped his great rough hands together and said, Oh, God, jump down my throat and squeeze the devil out. And then he said the old child's prayer. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. If ever a big rough fellow came like a little child to Jesus, he did. For his life from that day was absolutely new. Another of those men's wives sent for me, and said she feared he was going mad, for he had hung up his old ragged clothes on the wall, 
but we soon heard him come singing up the street, and he said, I've hung them up to remind us all what I was like when Jesus set me free. A lot of our blokes have turned respectable and gone and joined the chapel, and I thought if ever the devil comes to tempt me that way, I'll show him those clothes and say, the hand that was good enough to pick me up will be good enough to lead me on to the finish. So I said to his wife, he might do a worse thing. Let them hang there if it helps him any. How the army won so many of its worst opponents to be its soldiers comes out beautifully in a more recent story. When I was a drunkard, says a poor woman, I used to just hate the army. But one day as I was drinking in the King George public house, I heard them singing to an old tune of my childhood, and that brought me out. I stood and listened, and the sergeant of the cadets, who was leading, came over to me and said, "'Isn't it very cold? Hadn't you better go home? Don't go back to them,' she said, nodding towards the public house. And she started to walk with me and put her jacket round my shoulders. In that moment I felt that the Salvation Army was something for me. Not only did this woman get saved, but her husband and children, too, as a result of that loving act. There came times in many cities, both in England and elsewhere, when our opposers were formally organized against us, under such names as opposition and skeleton armies, etc. These were organizations in some instances so formidable, especially on Sunday afternoons, that at one time in 1882 there would be 1,500 police on extra duty to protect us from their attack. This, of course, we much disliked, and we gave up our marchers entirely for a few weeks, so that when we began again the police might get proper control. They never allowed the formation of these bands again, for they had learned their lesson by that time. But how marvelously God helped the general by means of those very oppositions. They brought us into close touch with bodies of young fellows, many of whom have since become leaders amongst us. Strange and sad that throughout all the years of our most desperate fighting, we scarcely ever found men from the better classes daring to march with us. One noble exception, Colonel Pepper of Salisbury, with his wife, never hesitated in the roughest times to take their stand with their humblest comrades, glad to go through whatever came. To Mrs. Pepper the general wrote in 1880, The colonel will have sent you some information of our meetings, but any real description is impossible. Manchester has, in many respects, surpassed everything. The colonel himself has pleased me immensely, so humble and willing. When I look at him in the processions, evidently enjoying them, I cannot help wondering at what God hath wrought and praising him. London seems your place, and it has been borne in on my mind that the time has come for us to make an attack on the West End 
and to raise a corps there, principally out of the proper and decent people. I don't mean out of the Plymouth Brethren, or the Evangelical Party, so-called, but out of the wicked and wretched class who have money and position and education, and who are floating to hell with it all. I shrink from suggesting further sacrifices to you. God give you wisdom. We have much success and much trial, and much bitter opposition. We must have more and more success, and more trial, and more bitter opposition. We must have more intelligent officers, and you must help us get them. That West End attempt, made later by Mrs. Booth, produced for us indeed some officers who have done much for the Army's advancement, although perhaps not another Colonel Pepper. The very attacks made upon us, however, helped to attract the attention of thoughtful people, and to lead to our meetings persons possessing all the gifts needed for the Army's worldwide extension. Amongst these were Colonel Mildred Duff, editress of our papers for the young, and authoress of a number of books, Commissioner W. Elwyn Oliphant, then an Anglican clergyman, Miss Reed, daughter of a former governor of Madras, and now the wife of Commissioner Booth Tucker of India, Lieutenant Colonel Mary Bennett, as well as Mrs. Deneau Walker, Dr. and Mrs. Haywood Smith, and a number of other friends in England and many other lands, who, though never becoming officers, have in various ways been our steadfast and useful friends and supporters. Surely it can only be a question of time. It is true what our great master said, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But if in the days of our weakness and contempt it was given us to win such a force of honorable women and a man now and then, are we to despair, now that all the world is awakened to the value of our work, of winning for it more of the excellent of the earth? The prosecutions of our people by the police also helped us not only to attain notoriety locally, but to gain a much higher standing generally. As soon as the general could find legal ground for appealing against the magistrate's decisions, he did so, and this not only obtained for us judgments that made our pathway clear in the future, but caused the then Lord Chancellor, the late Earl Cairns, Lord Chief Justice Cockburn, Archbishop Tate of Canterbury, Bishop Lightfoot of Durham, and other men of wide influence to speak out in the House of Lords or elsewhere for us. And yet, throughout his entire career, right down to his last days, the general was at times personally assailed with a malevolence and bitterness that could hardly have been exceeded. It has constantly been suggested, if not openly stated, that he was simply making a pile of money for himself. And yet, as will be seen in our chapter on finance, he made the most comprehensive arrangements to render suspicion on this score inexcusable. But try if you can, 
at every turn throughout all his life, whenever you hear of General Booth, to realize what it means for such a man, struggling to carry on and extend such a work, to know every minute, day and night, that he is being accused and suspected of seeking only his own all the time. Remember that his nature was perhaps abnormally sensitive about any mistrust or suspicion, and about the confidence of those nearest to him. And then you may have some conception of the cross he had always to bear, and of the wounded heart that went about for years inside that bold and smiling figure. And yet there is, thank God, much of the humorous to relieve our tensions in the army. A brother commissioner of mine remembers seeing the general sail for the United States for the first time. As the steamer swung off, a bystander remarked, So he's off. Yes. And when do you go? Go? What do you mean? Well, you will never see him again now, will you? And then my comrade fairly took in that the man was alluding to the continual prophecy of those days that the general, once he had got enough, would disappear with all the money he had raised. So that man went down to his house laughing, and has been laughing over it now for twenty-six years. Perhaps the general gained more than can ever be calculated from having to begin and to carry on his warfare, for a long time, in the very teeth of public opinion. We're marching on to war, we are, we are, we are. We care not what the people think, nor what they say we are, was one of the favorite choruses which, in his greatest public demonstrations in this country, as well as in his ordinary meetings, he taught us to sing. Only in this spirit of utter disregard for public opinion have God's prophets in all ages been able to do their work, and only whilst they remain indifferent to men's scorn and opposition can the soldiers of the Salvation Army properly discharge their task of warning and teaching every man in all wisdom. How indispensable this state of mind is to the individual convert, only those who have lived for Christ amongst the hostile surroundings of a great city can really know. That we have now so many resolute comrades, even amongst the young people, who meet with no encouragement, but rather with every sort of contempt and rebuff in their homes, their workshops, and their neighborhoods in which they live, is alike a remarkable demonstration of the extent to which this great victory has been won, and at the same time of the far wider and grander conquests that are yet to come. The gigantic enterprises that lie before us if Christ is really to become the first and last with the millions of Africa, India, Japan, and China, as with those of America and Europe, would be hopeless were we not prepared to raise up soldiers to this great military height of contempt for civilian opinion. But it may be that our very attitude in this respect has whetted the enemy's resolution to do all that could be done to prejudice public opinion against us. The very large measure of popularity, 
or at any rate respect, so far as the army generally is concerned, in which we rejoice today, must be attributed to the impression created by the calm persistence of the general, and those who have truly followed him, in doing what they believe to be right, in turning from all they believe to be doubtful and wrong, in spite of the general condemnation and opposition of those around them. The very people who today applaud our efforts to assist the poorest and the worst to a self-supporting and honorable career are often blind to the fact that we have only succeeded by doing the very things which they once said we ought not to do, and by turning away from all the old customs to which they would fain have chained us. End of section 11 Recording by Tom Hirsch